Hey guys, Emily here. Uh, we are going to be jumping right into the interview with Liz, O.C., and Daniela from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. However, first, I just want to let you know that I am going to be jumping in and out of the interview with a little bit of fact-checking in the interest of science. Uh, but with that, enjoy. Here we go. Okay. I'm rolling. Rolling. Okay, so we're going to just start with having you guys introduce yourselves, if you wouldn't mind. All right, my name is Osunachi Ajoku. I am currently a fourth-year PhD candidate at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I am Elizabeth Drenkard, Liz. I am a postdoc at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And I am Daniela Fajani Diaz, and I'm a third year PhD student also at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And all of you guys are in Dr. Art Miller's lab, correct? Yes. 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 All right. So, Scripps Institute of Oceanography is leading not only San Diego in climate research, but the world in a lot of ways. How does your research fit into that? Why don't you guys give a little summary of your research and how you see it playing into the, the world? Yeah, so um, my research focuses on the effects that biomass burning in Africa has on the West African monsoon. Um, so in terms of uh, the social aspect, um, we're looking at a region predominantly 200 million people. So the way the mechanism works is that fires happen either naturally or anthropogenically, and chemicals get emitted. We call these aerosols. Um, they get lofted in the atmosphere, and they kind of change the cloud dynamics, just to put it in short terms. And I am studying the impact of climate change on, generally speaking, uh, California fisheries. So what I'm doing is using uh, computer models, physical ocean models. It's sort of like a video game almost, and we're running a simulation of what the currents and the temperature looks like under what we think is going to happen in the future. And then we try to predict what does that mean for where the fish are going to be and what will that mean for the people who depend on them for their livelihoods. And I'm studying those slow variations in, in the ocean. Uh, and those slow variations, they are really important for you to define the predictability of the climate system at different time scales. And the oceans, they can add predictability and they can change the atmosphere, the atmosphere above it. And it's important for us to be able to predict what is going to happen in the future. Perfect. Okay. Um, so out of all of the science that's mentioned in Cat's Cradle, what part made you chuckle the hardest? Uh, tornadoes in the upper atmosphere. <laughs> um, just thinking about the physical mechanism of how that can actually happen is it was hard to wrap my head around. Uh, I had two things. Um, one was, how did they not get frostbite when they could walk around? And, and touch stuff that had ice nine, but it was only when they swallowed it or it touched the internal fluids that it actually froze them. I'm like, what? That, that that bothered me. Like, especially maybe not normally it would give them frostbite, but what if they were sweating? And then the other thing, he has one line in there, and I'm convinced it's a typo. Maybe it's not. But he says how animals breathe in oxygen and they exhale oxygen. This was this big thing that we found out. It took us a long time as humans to understand it. And then he says, animals breathe out carbon dioxide and other animals breathe it in and vice versa. And I'm pretty sure he meant plants. He was talking about, I'm like, mm. and he was a biogeochemical major at 
school. So it was like, um, not so sure that's quite right. But anyway, I got hung up on the biology. (laughs) I think for me was the part where they said that it's going to be really hot and I thought that it would be not the case because the when the ocean freezes it's going to be really bright white and all the sun would be reflected back although there is a certain time lag for that but the way that he puts is that it's going to be extremely hot and I wouldn't think that this is the case mm-hmm. okay so why don't we kind of go into what you started to discuss about okay. how terrifying ice nine is <laughs> oh it's awful like that you kind of sympathize with all the people you definitely sympathize with them it is sort of end of the world situation and the reality of it is you know you start to wonder could that really happen and i don't know i'm not a chemist but from the biological standpoint it's like oh the poor fish in the sea that got stuck in there and you know what is that going to mean in terms of life and you know if you really could have that happen you lose any of the circulation patterns right so real ice floats on top of water and it's less dense than the liquid form so you can actually have a lot of life going under the ice on under the ice in at the poles whereas in this scenario the colder it gets doesn't you know it keeps getting colder it keeps freezing and it's completely solid so i, I you know thinking about that it's just so sad all these ecosystems coral reefs are gone and you know whales and all these amazing creatures that are just you know blink of an eye that's it so yeah i would feel pretty depressed for other reasons as well but you know (laughs) oh man there go my study creatures (laughs) um i think of ice nine as a global weather experiment that went wrong um just i guess in my field like i understand the different aspects of um of geoengineering and one method of geoengineering is seeding is cloud seeding and um just the aspect of ice nine just seems to be like the most horrible cloud seeding uh material ever created <laughs> um so i i don't know I, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap my head around that part hmm. another thing we've done you know think more on the ecological side coming at it at the biological angle the introduction of rabbits to australia just we thought we had this great idea and it just bottomed out and was a complete disaster for the environment. And that actually has a feedback on the local climate because if you don't have the plant life there, plants send atmosphere like moisture back into the atmosphere and they have their role in the environment. So that was just something that reminded me like, yeah, that's another geoengineering. We didn't actually intend for that to happen. <laughs> but we don't have the best history in terms of trying to change our environment. So it's a little worrying. It's like, oh boy, this is going to end very badly. And also it's hard is how hard would be for us to reverse the case in the case of ice nine because if you have this seed that freezes the water at forty six degrees Celsius, how would you reverse that? And it's almost impossible. So indeed it would be the end of the world. That's and we have a history of introducing you know, invasive species because mm. uh, we think it's going to, you know, solve a problem that happens a lot in you know, to, speaking about fishing, like a lot in lakes, like, oh, we have this really, really bad predator. Let's introduce this other predator yeah. <laughs> to get it. And it just creates a problem where they like, oh, are these fish need something to eat? Let's introduce this algae. And that algae just completely takes over the lake. And yet we do not have a good history mm-hmm. of altering <laughs> the, the no. world. 
So, I mean, in some ways, we're kind of giving ourselves now with climate change no alternative because eventually the conditions we're setting up for ourselves are just not going to be habitable for a large majority of, presumably a large majority of the human population. So Mm -hmm. those sorts of solutions are becoming, you know, more necessary perhaps because, you know, emissions cutting alone probably won't do the necessary reductions in CO2 levels in the atmosphere, right? It would be more of a something in the more immediate future. We'd need something that's more like take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that's on the same page as geoengineering in general. So, and that's a very extreme scenario where it's, I'm saying the majority of the human population, it's really depends on where you are. If your home is underwater, then you can't stay there. So you have to relocate. Um, out of curiosity, to balance the other question that I asked, um, so in terms of what made you chuckle most at Cat's Cradle, what did you most enjoy? Like, was there some way that Vonnegut painted, not necessarily even a scientific plot device, but something that he did in the book? What was your favorite element that he introduced? I really liked the the satire way that he writes and this black humor regarding uh, being against war and if you think that this was in the 70s the historical moment that they they were living was the communists against the western nations and the way that he plot that's really is really interesting and also regarding the scientific effects, uh, there is a really interesting plot conversation between, I think, the secretary of Dr. Breed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where she, she mentions something on those lines that um, you think too much or I don't understand what you, what you think or what you say. And uh, it's really interesting the way she, as a non-scientist, trying to uh, explain that the scientists, they cannot explain to me what you are, what they, they do. So it's the, this idea of that the, sci- the science and the population, they have a problem of communication, and the scientists, they need to improve this communication for being able to, to say to the population what you are doing and why this is important. Because yeah, that's a big problem. Yeah, especially regarding climate change, that's the science we do. Yeah. To think that I don't have the numbers, but probably a lot of people, they don't believe in climate change. They... According to the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, only about half of Americans are certain climate change is actually happening. But on the flip side, about 10% think it isn't, and that's a lot of gray. I think what's kind of more important uh, is that also according to the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, only an eighth of Americans understand that there is a consensus among scientists that climate change is real. 97% of scientists think that climate change is real, and only an eighth of Americans believe that. That's um, that's upsetting. Uh, from a different study, uh, the Pew Research Center says that less than 40% of Americans also trust climate scientists, uh, and that's another problem with science communication that we need to work on. Anyway, back to the interview. This is something wrong that we as scientists are doing, the way that we give information for them. So this is something that definitely needs improvement. And I think Vonnegut, he puts that on the book. And I really like that part. Puts in the book 30 years ago. 30, yeah, yeah, 40 years ago. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. We were way off here. Uh, the um, book is 55 years old, as I say in the podcast. Whoops. 
For me, um, it was two things. One, most books don't really uh, capture the time that they're written in. And I feel like Vonnegut did it well because this is the post-Vietnam era. So it's this kind of anti-war, but this is in a scientific frame. And in another sense, he gives you something so out of the ordinary that it kind of rattles your mind. And it forces you to think. And I think that's the basic thing that you'd want a book to convey to a reader. Like, ha, just think. And to me, like, that was like the best part of the book. So also two things. Um, second, what Danny said, uh, that section with Dr. Breed, he goes on to say that if we can't, as scientists, explain our science to an eight-year-old, then we're charlatans. I mean, we really have no business doing what we're doing. And it is amazing that this was written a while ago, and that still rings very true, that our science is complicated. It took us a long time to get to where we are in terms of training. But in reality, once we've understood something or think we understand something, we should be able to make it available to anybody and, and just accessible. I think that's something that gets underemphasized right now. And, and to hear that that was still an issue then, or at least something that people thought about when this book was written, is um, it's thought-provoking. And yeah. it's inspiring as well to be like, no, this is absolutely true, and it was true before. So, yeah. And there is one thing that came to my mind now that's regarding the picture that he puts of the San Lorenzo, San Lorenzo Island. That's this uh, Caribbean island, this fake Caribbean island. But it's really through what actually happened on that time where the United States would go to those islands and colonize and people would be, one person usually would be really rich because they just like infested the island with cane sugar and there would be like some dictator or there is really rich and has all the luxury while the population is really poor and suffering and hungry. And this is like a great picture for many of the, especially the Caribbean islands and the Latin American countries in general. Yeah, it's a satire, not just of what science is doing, but what mm -hmm. a globalization yes. is doing. And also, you know, that plays into the climate change, social injustice, that the people who are often are going, are predicted to be the ones that will suffer the worst are the ones who are least responsible for the problem. Yeah. Those that have the least and have the least means to cope. So moving forward, there is San Diego 2050 is calling. How will we answer? Now, this is not anything that's actually a law yet. This is just different lawmakers, different businesses, different organizations in San Diego that have gotten together and have decided that these are concrete, real things that we can do as a city to try to help protect the effect, our city from the effects of climate change. Um, I find that there's a lot of really interesting points in here for science communication purposes like it does a very good job of trying to explain to everybody what um you know what we need to do in language that everybody can understand however i'm just curious what your guys thoughts are in terms of what they're actually proposing and is it enough um for me it's it's always hard to say whether it's enough because just looking at this uh, document, I think some of the future projections, they're based on mo climate models. Um, so it says very generic statements such as, we think that um, there will be uh, less, there'll be more extreme events, but there'll be less precipitation as a whole. That's just kind of predicted from a climate model based off of temperature, CO2 patterns, and ocean circulation. But what I do agree in this document is that 
these businesses are doing their best efforts to cut down CO2 uh, energy use. And I think that's more, that's very, very, very practical. Um, but as far as the, the climate model predictions, they're just predictions. They have high levels of uncertainty. So I wouldn't stake my life savings on that. But more of a practical, um, more practical things we can do, like cutting energy use. So I'm inclined to just say it's not enough but that's more based on cynicism of what I know a policymaker or a politician has to balance. It's the values of their constituents versus, well, it's, that's what they have to balance overall. And is it the value of the constituents that we act on a potential future problem or is it that we make money or have enough right now? And if you start applying taxes or these different regulations, if people start seeing them as a burden in the moment, um, then a politician doesn't have much chance of sticking around. They won't be reelected. So just because what a politician needs to balance in order to maintain their own tenure, I'm inclined to think they tend to come up with plans that will allow them to stay in office, but at the same time um, still move in the direction of what the constituents want. So in this case, it may not be just up to the politicians, but I'm always skeptical of these plans. But on another note entirely is no city is acting in a vacuum. So San Diego can do this and that's fantastic. But if they're the only city in America that makes these changes, it won't have really a significant impact on the global climate. And that's really still going to affect the large scale patterns of weather and what we see here. So I'm, I'm very proud of the efforts that are going into it, but alone, it's not going to make a real difference. So I hope other cities, other regions are doing the same amount of work because at the same time, if one area starts to take on all of these efforts and it comes at an economic disadvantage and then no one else goes into that as well, then they've taken on a preliminary economic advantage, disadvantage and will still suffer the results of climate change, which is not a good position to be in. So it's sort of an all-in or none-in situation because mm -hmm. no one's going to win by a partial effort. It really has to be kind of a global concerted effort towards this, or at least the on the part of the highest emitters around the globe. Uh, I think that even if one city... By, by itself is not enough to solve the problem. It's good as an example for the others, right? Mm -hmm. And although the problem is global, yes, but we have to act local. It's easy. You cannot think something that's global if it's not applicable. You have to have small goals. And I think that's what San Diego is doing now. And hopefully it will inspire the other cities in, in the United States and other cities around the world. And I think that's the really valid I think also talking about your research in specifics, like you're talking about helping like hundreds of people in the continent, thousands of millions of people in the continent, you're talking about an entire industry. Like all of you guys are talking about doing things that are going to impact vast stretches of our community and our, our globe, our global commerce. So what would you like to see? happen? Like for your particular research, what would you like to see the globe take on? Or at least San Diego? Should I even talk? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
now I can go since since my research is uh, I guess related to Africa. What I envision is various countries in Africa coming together, and I kind of did this in an intricate way. So emissions from fires are happening in Central Africa, maybe three thousand miles away from the people that will be affected. So if this research spans out and I can get my foot in the door in any type of diplomatic fashion, I can talk to leaders about in, in, in varying countries about coming together and creating a cohesive plan uh, for mitigating climate change because it's not fair that you feel the effects of what a country is doing thousands of miles away, which kind of sounds like what's going on in the globe. If you're a small island country, per se, you're feeling the sea level rise done by big polluters, and you're definitely not one of them. Mm. So it, it, it's the same story in different places. Yeah, getting that sympathy for someone you don't see, for a country you don't participate in, that's a really hard thing to generate, especially, uh, you know, we're pretty fortunate as individuals that we probably have enough money to have a full meal. But when there are folks who are just trying to make ends meet, pay their rent, you know, make sure their kids get safely to school, it's it's really hard to make that a priority because there's a very much, you know, an imminent issue of the here and now that I have to survive. I can't really be putting any more emotional effort into people that are far away from me. And you just do whatever you can to survive. And I think it's trying to make that more tangible, that it does matter. The whole planet does matter. You know, the reefs on the other side of the world, they are important, even though we don't have tropical coral reefs here in San Diego, they have some intangible or less connected important to us, importance to us. And um, that's, I think what we really struggle with is that you have to generate this sense of importance. You have to make people care. And it's hard in this world today because there's so much on social media. It's so loud. There's so much noise. There's so many stories that are just pull at your heartstrings. So it's trying to direct all of those emotions to do something productive. Um, personally, what I would like to see, this is sort of a joke, but I'd like fit people to see fish as not plants. Um, I, have, <laughs> I, have, I, I know people will say, oh, I'm vegetarian, but I eat fish. I'm like, there's a different category for that. A fish is not a plant. <laughs> But it speaks to a different, just um, how people think of our marine resources at large. It's sort of not connecting in a way. It's not seeing that these are animals and also thinking of a big picture. We think about a fishery as being a single fish, like maybe a particular rockfish or sea bass. And the reality is the entire ecosystem is playing into many fisheries. So how the water temperature changes affects the kelp. The kelp provides a home for lots of different animals that might be food for the fishery. But if we're just looking at the numbers of the fish and saying that's the important metric, but not looking at what's at the base of that food chain or at the base of that ecosystem, we're kind of missing the big picture. So I think trying to prioritize not just individual organisms, but the home for those organisms overall, because then I think we'll have more effective management strategies. All right. Do you guys have any, like I didn't, like I said, this is supposed to be more of like a conversation. So if we just kind of want to talk casually or if there's anything in particular that you wanted to discuss, now would be the moment. Do we want to have our Ice Nine conversation? Yeah, Ice Nine conversation. <laughs> <laughs> what would happen if Ice Nine were a thing? Right. Um, just the climate science part of my brain, the first thing I think of is radiation. That's like the first keyword that's triggered. 
um, the reflection of radiation. So radiation is the energy that comes from the sun um, and is the main driver of what controls or what keeps the temperature at a specific threshold on the planet. So that would be the first thing to change with ice nine. Yeah, so kind of a simplified thing. When, when we're doing really simple models of what the climate does, we think of the planet for a, a jumping off point as this ball, this black, what we call black body. And we use black because that's the color that absorbs all light. At the end of this other end of the spectrum would be something that's white that would reflect all light. So we use black body to explain the physics. All the sunlight coming in gets absorbed. It makes the molecules move, like that energy is converted into a kinetic energy or average kinetic energy is a temperature. And then it re-emits that at a lower frequency. In our case, it's long wave radiation, it's heat. So if you go and change the material so that now it goes from being, you know, the earth is not black, that's an approximation. So we, we use the term albedo to describe how much gets reflected off of the planet. So our albedo is what? It's like you said about 0.2 right now? Is that 0.3. 0.3. Is the, the average albedo on yeah. Earth. Yeah. And so that changes because you've got like at the poles, you've got ice. That's very reflective. If you go anywhere else around the planet, there's water. That's blue or not really blue, but it, it has a different reflectance. Um, you've got land that's all sorts of different colors and there's vegetation. So if all of a sudden you just magically made it so it's extremely reflective, it's not going to absorb a lot of energy. And that gets into what you were saying about it maybe probably not being hot, but we were thinking end up getting kind of cold in this hypothetical environment. A good analogy would be the snowball earth, because in the past we had some case of where the earth was completely or most of the part covered oh, in like ice snow. ages and such, yeah. Yeah. And I think this would be a good analogy for what would happen too for that. And another striking thing is that you suddenly stop the ocean currents. As we know, the ocean absorbs a lot of heat, absorbs like 90% of the heat that uh, comes from in the Earth. And it's mostly absorbed on the tropics and is redistributed to the, to the poles. So that's why we have uh, mild weather uh, that where we can live. If it's not the case, if the ocean didn't move, the, um, the tropics would be extremely warm and the poles would be extremely cold. But in the case of the ice nine, we wouldn't have this um, absorption of this uh, radiation coming from the sun. Would be Most of the radiation would be reflected back. So after a certain time, the Earth would be... I made some calculations like of the very simple model and it could be like a minus 100 Celsius. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Cold. And it would not be like immediate, like, um, but it would take a certain time. But that, that's probably what would, would happen with the Ice Nine and the future. Yeah. yeah, we were talking about like maybe we could take a climate model that was already running and just change the freezing temperature and see what happens. And we didn't get around to that because we were talking about it yesterday, but. Um, I would predict that the model would return an error message where it says it literally, these error messages say it blew up, um, <laughs> because it pretty much what it, it has some trigger that if, if it gets velocities that are unrealistic in water or on land or in the air, they're like, this isn't realistic. You can't keep running this. Um, so we were talking about the tornadoes and things like that. What would happen immediately after it'd be probably would be pretty chaotic because you've got this system. Anytime a model 
and this is just like a model being a toy representation or an approximation of what the planet's doing. It's always more complicated than our models, but they give us a rough estimate and they've gotten pretty good over the years. So if you make a really sudden dramatic change like that, the model freaks out. So we'd expect the planet would probably freak out. <laughs> the, the question we were getting at when we were talking about is like, okay, what would that actually look like? And you were thinking, yeah, maybe tornadoes would be a thing. Yeah. Uh, so... The first thing that you so when I think of uh, just going back a little bit when I think of uh, energy, energy can either be transmitted through it can be absorbed it can be reflected, and with this uh, ice nine scenario the reflectivity would increase the absorption would go much down so all the ocean circulation and things would stop but over land you would still have deserts, um, and these deserts are pretty hot and they won't be covered in ice because there's no water so you would have a huge temperature gradient. Um, but since there's not moisture, so like the idea of a monsoon, whether you're in India or in West Africa, you would have a huge low center, a huge low pressure cell, which ideally is a tornado. So I believe that the idea of a tornado is possible if you have these huge temperature gradients. So one thing that um, Alex Tardy said from the National Weather Service is that he found the whole idea of tornadoes ridiculous kind of as well, but he suggested that perhaps... Uh, Vonnegut was talking more about dust devils covering the earth, where that would be a much more realistic scenario. Exactly. And, and that's kind of uh, the idea, especially if it's in a, in a desert, right? Mm. You'd have a dust devil. But the book says in the upper troposphere, which is like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was kind of nuts. <laughs> that's nuts. <laughs> I feel like that's the one thing people take away. Mm, tornadoes, nope, that's not going to happen. And another thing also is that you wouldn't have uh, rain anymore. Or it would be really rare because the ocean is source of uh, the most of the moist around the globe because of the the, the sun evaporates the, the water. So you would completely break the hydrological cycle, mm. and rain would be really rare because you have precipitation minus evaporation, and this has to balance. If you suddenly stop your evaporation or decreases a lot, the precipitation would also stop because you wouldn't have source of water since the water is melt and you can't evaporate because you will only evaporate if it's like more than 46 degrees celsius which or if it's isolated yeah I was getting kind of, so they talk about, I, I just finished the book and they were like talking about the tornadoes throwing bits of ice nine to where it wouldn't normally touch if there hadn't been tornadoes. I'm like, so it really could get up into the clouds. Like, would you have clouds falling out of the sky? Cause that's water. And I'm like, that's terrifying. That would accelerate the shutdown of the hydrological cycle because yeah. you're taking all of that suspended moisture and that, I mean, they didn't talk about clouds falling out of the sky. So I guess... If it's already kind of in crystalline form, it can't be ice right. nine. But in vapor, it won't be effective. But as soon as it turns liquid, okay, yeah, all right, fine. Maybe the the <laughs> I mean, Thonigan is obviously using a bit of poetic license. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But it's like, then why can't I take it a little further? <laughs> I, I think uh, I think the movie the day after tomorrow yes. would probably be more of an accurate description. Although there wouldn't be as much snow. It's not going to be cold right away like that, right? But just imagine the Gulf Stream shutting down. Oh yeah, I mean, right? The tropical land in Florida is no more. <laughs> well, even you know what they talk about realistically looking at the slowing down of that circulation. So that is a point of active research right now is looking at how the thermal haline circulation and not just that, but also the Gulf Stream um, are slowing down. And is it in response to climate change? And what could that mean for weather conditions in 
um, like the UK because that system is connected and if that would get pretty cold there. Like they actually have somewhat mild climates given their latitude and if that all of a sudden got shut down, they're purely going to be dictated, well, mostly by their latitudinal location and how much sunlight they're getting. Um, one of the other analogies we talked about, so sometimes in science we look for extraterrestrial analogies. So we can say, okay, well, if this happened, we were talking about is Mars something that we could use, like as a comparison? Mm-hmm. And there's sort of yes, sort of no. So Mars, there's no liquid water there. And Mars has seasons. So, it, you know, we were talking about the back and forth about is that something we could look to as an indication of what life would be like. And there is carbon dioxide on in Mars's atmosphere, but not it's not as thick, or the atmosphere isn't as thick as Earth's, right? Yeah. So, you know, would they have a greenhouse effect? It's so cold on Mars, but it's also further from the sun than we are. And it's red, not white, as this mm. hypothetical uh, Ice Nine Earth is. So I think it's white and blue marbled, but yeah. It's like yeah, white. so the blue is really getting to me because I'm like, I want it to be white, so I have a simple albedo effect to talk <laughs> about. Now I'm like, blue, huh? What is that going to do? So it would still absorb some radiation. It's not a perfect white, but it would definitely reflect a lot more. A lot more. Probably not yeah. 0.9, but 0.7. It's much more yeah. than we, we have now. Yeah. Right. Unless you're inside of a volcano, which was a weird idea I had. Where to live? Where to live in this hot nine scenario? A volcano, very hot. Um, water can stay in this uh, vapor stage, and you can melt the water there without the ice nine interfering. Mm. Well, because at the end of the book, there, yeah, they're like boiling ice nine to get yeah. water, yeah. which is like they also they survive for six months, and everything you guys are saying, like maybe they could survive for a short period of time, but it does sound like the Earth would become inhabitable relatively quickly. Yeah, they definitely want to be depending on geothermal heat sources because at the surface it would be cold, but they'd still probably have molten stuff happening out to eat. You know, Hawaii would be great right now. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) It is not great right now. (laughs) But um, just having that heat source. I mean, even if it got that cold, if they had combustion still, if they can light stuff on fire, they got tons of kindling. Can they still keep themselves warm? This is Maybe. the 70s. Yeah. No. <laughs> 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 and we were talking about, like, um, you know, what if you can make an igloo out of Ice Nine? Could it trap heat? Like, would you use it as a building material? It's very dangerous. It's like, it's like if you rub your lips against the side of the I wall. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you do not want to do that childhood prank of putting your tongue on a frozen flagpole that would not end well (laughs) no double dog daring there um but it's yeah and then we were also talking about you were talking about the deserts relative to the tornadoes but you still like places where there's no water it talked about the moist green ground turning the frosty color like the molten white and blue but somewhere there's no water to freeze Mm -hmm. you know how's that going to change and they deserts get really hot during the day and they lose their heat pretty quickly at night and the temperature plummets so it's kind of um how would that locally change because if they don't have any water coming in there's not going to be ice there so would they still get really hot during the day and some deserts can get over what was it 114.4 fahrenheit yeah so there you could get liquid water again Hmm. so we were talking about that as well as like at the equator if it could get hot enough you might have like a band of liquid water, and then but then it would refreeze because it's a contact with the ice nine again. So how would that pl- 
play into things. We got pretty creative with some of the different models we could run. <laughs> well, if you guys ever try to decide to run one, we could definitely. Find well, people a way to, people like, to have put it out there. like done. They've done Snowball Earth. They've done yeah, Aqua great. Planet, where it's all water. You know, oh. so there's definitely. Um, different experiments out there that people have done. So is that I've, publicly available or the publications are the publications uh, are. Yeah. yeah. People are actively running aqua planet because the continents, sorry to stop uh, aqua planet. I am assuming is an entire planet made of water, right? Yeah. Or at least the surface is all water. Yeah. Is yeah. there's a, yeah. You assume that the there's earth, no there's continents. no continents. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause the continents have a really big impact on our circulation patterns. I mean, they drive where the Gulf stream is and, yeah. and all those different patterns that affect a lot of you know our local ecosystems at least on the coast um so yeah so aqua planet is an active field of research people like to play with that model but you know that's one of the fun things about being an ocean or climate modeler is you're sort of in this situation where you get to play god i should be careful about what i say here but <laughs> you can come up with well what if i want the world to be a little different in this way what would happen you could, you really could literally go in and say the freezing temperature of water is 114.4 Fahrenheit or Celsius or Kelvin, whatever uh, metric you want, and find out what the model says. It may not be right. It probably won't be right because we do a lot of approximation simplifications, and it's just not set up for that yeah. to have that big a change. But you could still do it and, and say something. Don't know where it would get published because a lot of reviewers would say this is ridiculous, but, you know. A journal of negative results. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which should exist. Yes, no, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think that that is fantastic. That's good enough. Is there any, again, closing remarks? Um, no. All right, well, thanks, guys, for joining. This is fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. My pleasure. Yeah, yeah, no. It's kind of a gloomy book. <laughs> <laughs> but really good. Everyone should read it. Oh, it's yeah. excellent. Yeah. <laughs> It was good for me to read it really fast, so I really like over the weekend. Okay, and that about wraps it up for this interview. One last little fact check here. Uh, when Liz was saying that Hawaii wouldn't be a wonderful place to be right now, that's because of the erupting volcano Kilauea, which has displaced about 2,000 people from their home. Uh, we recorded this interview in May of 2018 when the volcano first started erupting, and it is still going. If you would like to hear more interviews like this, then recommend a book for Device to Tackle, and we will track down San Diego scientists and get to it. Again, thanks for listening. <laughs>